Okay. All right. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 17 this morning. Revelation chapter 17. And we, we want to look at this section in Revelation as we continue working through Revelation. We'll probably only get to Revelation 17. Um, I probably won't get into Revelation 18. So let me just read for us chapter 17. Revelation 17, verse 1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. They receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Let's pray again. Father, we just thank you for your word. We do pray for grace. 
to see and understand what your word says, to see how it applies to our lives, and that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to trust and obey you in light of what your word says. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, just want to remind you why I'm doing what I'm doing. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of Acts, the book of Revelation, and we're doing it because of what's going on in our country. And those books, all three of those books, have something to say to us about how we're to live in light of what's going on in these very unusual times. And the book of Revelation obviously is talking about um, the rule of Christ over history and what we can expect in history. And maybe one of the most simple ways to think about the book of Revelation is to think about it in terms of the series of sevens that we have in the book. We have seven churches that are talked about which represent the rule of Christ over the church throughout history. Then you have seven seals, which I believe represents the rule of Christ over history, secular or, or typical history, the history of the world in terms of what we can expect throughout history as Christ rules and he reigns. And then we see seven trumpets, and trumpets are meant to announce that something is about to happen. They're warnings. And to me, they're warnings of divine judgment. And they relate to the fig tree leaves. And how Jesus said, when these things b- begin to happen, then you know that your redemption draws nigh. And then you have the seven bowls that refer to the outpouring of God's wrath and just judgment at the end. And then after the seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, The last two chapters, and then leading up to it, is the return of Christ and then the new heavens and the new earth, which is the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of heaven on earth. And isn't that what everybody wants? In fact, the United Nations, if you read what their goals are, it's basically heaven on earth. That's what they want. And if you look at the Great Reset talk and all that men are trying to do with climate change and with uh, all kinds of different things they're trying to put into place, they're really pursuing heaven on earth, apart from God. We as Christians know that, that having the hope of heaven on earth is a good hope, but not apart from God, and not apart from Jesus Christ. And so we are moving in a direction. History is not circular. History is linear. We're moving toward heaven on earth, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven on earth, And yet the reality is, not everyone will be a part of that kingdom. And there are real obstacles to entering the kingdom. The Lord Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, and he said, Woe to you because you hinder people from entering the kingdom of God. And so there are real obstacles in the way of people to entering the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so what we find in chapter 17 as well as chapter 18 of the book of Revelation is a discussion of one aspect of this world system that is in opposition to people entering the kingdom. Now if you read the book of Revelation the way it's pictured and the book of Revelation is a book of pictures, it pictures reality, it pictures truth, and what we find pictured in the book of Revelation is there are three aspects of this world system that opposes people entering into the kingdom of God. 
One aspect is what we might call tyrannical government. And that's the beast from the sea. There's also um, the element of false religion. That's the beast from the earth. And then we have the godless society or the godless culture. And that is what we find in chapter 17 and 18, which is called Babylon the Great. And it's manifested in two different ways, or it's pictured in two different ways. It's pictured as a great harlot, and it's pictured as a great city. So it's a society, but it's a society that's a very seductive society. And so that's what we find in these two chapters, is a discussion of this aspect of the world system that focuses on ungodly society, seductive society, that leads people away from the true God and that hinders people from entering into the kingdom of heaven. But what we find happening here is the fact that, whereas in our day and time, people talk about cancel culture and about how, you know, if you don't say what people want you to say and do what people want you to do, then you will get canceled. They'll walk over there to you and stamp on your forehead, canceled, and nobody listens to you anymore, supposedly. Or at least that's their hope. Because in our day and time, there are those who have an agenda. It's a very worldly agenda. And because they don't have any strong arguments for their agenda, they have to cancel everybody who has a strong argument against it. They have to make that argument illegitimate. They have to argue that those people need to be silenced. And that's what cancel culture is very much about. It's not about free speech. It's not about accountability. It's about silencing opposition, those who disagree with the agenda. Well, these two chapters tell us that we need not be afraid of being canceled by the culture because God himself is going to cancel the culture. He is going to put an end to ungodly society. He's going to put an end to the seductive society that draws people away from him. And so I just want to highlight several different things uh, from chapter 17. We'll probably only talk about a couple of these uh, this morning, and we'll finish it next time, Lord willing. But the first thing that I want us to see is that what's being portrayed here in chapter 17 is it's a reminder that everyday life in this fallen world is not harmless at all. Uh, it's not your friend. If you notice in the first seven verses it, verses, it talks about what you might call the immoral and drunk harlot. A harlot is obviously a prostitute. Um, and what you find pictured there in the first two verses, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came, and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. The idea of waters uh, is actually the idea of many peoples. Because later on in the chapter, it talks about the fact that in verse 15, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the picture of being seated on many waters is the picture of being um, an influence over society, indeed, all of the world's societies. And so it's the great harlot, and obviously it's the picture of a prostitute who, who is trying to attract people to do certain things. Indeed, 
to attract people to do wrong things. And it says in verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now, we may think in very literal physical terms, but this is actually pointing beyond the physical kind of immorality to spiritual immorality. It's talking about idolatry. It's talking about being intoxicated with things that have nothing to do with the true God. It's talking about being just kind of involved in life without God and thinking that that is the path to help and happiness that our hearts long for. And so the, the great harlot deceives us into thinking that life is found in what I can see and what I hear and, and it's found in life and, and being, you know, someone who gets all kinds of likes on Facebook or gets all kinds of support on Instagram and and gets all all that they can get out of um, you know having a good time in this life and making money and moving up the corporate ladder or whatever it may be the seductive idea of all of this is that that's where life is found and not having God in my life is no big deal in fact don't even know if there is a God and many people in our day and time don't even think in terms of God anymore. We've moved away from the idea of God for many people or uh, right and wrong or life after death or anything like that. And, and people are just intoxicated with what they can get out of this life and no thoughts about what may happen after this life and whether or not there is a God that they're accountable to. And so that's the idea of being intoxicated is that you're basically just consumed with all of this world system and what's going on and trying to fit in and trying to make the most of it and just being blind and indifferent to the fact that you are a creature created by a God and one day you'll stand before him. No thoughts of that. The Bible talks a lot about uh, stumbling blocks. The idea of a stumbling block is obviously, if I were to close my eyes and walk along and trip over this speaker and fall, uh, that speaker will have become a stumbling block for me. The stumbling block is a picture of something that we trip over. Sometimes the idea of the stumbling block is I trip over it and I fall into sin. Sometimes it's the picture of I trip over it and I fall into hell. And that's what Jesus meant when he told the Pharisees, Woe to you who keep those who are entering from entering into the kingdom of God. Woe to you. You are a stumbling block. You trip men into hell because of what you're doing. And that stumbling block idea is associated one way or the other with wrong worship. And so we see that... um, In the book of Ezekiel, if you were to read Ezekiel 14, there's a discussion about idolatry, and it's in the context of stumbling blocks. For instance, verse 3 says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. So what's right in front of their faces? The things they worship apart from God. And it's the very thing that causes them to stumble to keep them from trusting God and looking to God as they should, to keep them from living as God would have them 
live. And so the picture of the great harlot is a picture of the stumbling block that the world is. The world uh, is laying before us all kinds of things that are meant to trip us up and keep us from trusting God, looking to God, living to please God, but instead to be intoxicated with what the world has to offer. And the picture of it is the picture of um, Babylon. You'll notice that it says that in verse 5, there was a name on the forehead of the harlot. And in that day and time in Rome, um, according to certain reports, the prostitutes would have a band around their head and it would have their name on that band. And so in this case, the harlot has on her forehead a name uh, that was written, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. The mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. Babylon represents all the ungodly societies in the history of the world. And it's ironic that just recently there was a movie that came out called Babylon. And I would not recommend that you see it based on the reviews I've seen. But I did read one description of it. It's a movie uh, with Brad Pitt and some others. And it's about Hollywood in the 1920s. And the way things were in Hollywood during that time. And the description of the movie that I got offline simply says, A tale of outsized ambition and outrageous excess. It traces the rise and fall of multiple characters during an era of unbridled decadence and depravity in early Hollywood. And all you have to do is watch the trailer for it and you get a little taste of what it means by unbridled decadence and depravity and the context of outsized ambition. And that's interesting in light of the fact that uh, Babylon ultimately can be traced back to the Tower of Babel. When it talks about the tower being called the Tower of Babel or the city being called um, related to the Tower of Babel, some would translate Babel, Babylon. And therefore, it goes all the way back to the idea of the very first uh, society that came together was a society that did not want to obey God, but wanted to make a name for itself and wanted to build a tower into heaven that it might rule and reign from heaven. It had outrageous and outlandish ambition and did not want to live according to God's plan, but uh, was a society that God ultimately dispersed over the world through the confusion of the tongues. And Babel means confusion. So Babylon means the confusion of living a life without reference to God. And you can even hear this kind of confusion when you listen closely to people that have a certain ungodly agenda in our own uh, society. They want to achieve certain things, but they don't recognize how contradictory certain ideas are. They'll support some things and reject other things. And they don't realize how confusing their thought is because they're not pursuing that which is pleasing to God. And so the picture that we have here is a picture of a world system, um, a culture, a society that's without reference to God. 
and that has outsized ambition and unbridled decadence, and that is being seen more and more in our own day, and it's designed to lead people away from the true God. Many, t- many times you've probably heard people talk about the unholy trinity that we all face as Christians, that there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Bible talks about that challenge, that our, uh, inside of us there is a problem. Inside of us there is that which desires that which is wrong. That's the flesh, and that's part of our battle to trust God in love is to fight our own flesh. Then there is a real devil. There are real demons, and there are fiery darts that come into our minds from those, that devil and from those demons that we have to fight as well. But the Bible also says that the world is not our friend, and we are not to be a friend of the world. That's what it says in James 4. If you want to be a friend of the world, you will not be a friend of God because the world is in opposition to God. And so what does the world do? When First John, John characterizes the world in terms of three disordered loves. The love for pleasure, which is the lust of the flesh. The love for possessions, which is the lust of the eyes. And the love for power, which is the boastful pride of life. And that's what we see reflected in Revelation is all those things. We'll get into chapter 18 where it kind of fleshes it out even more when it talks about the kings of the earth um, committed immorality with the great harlot. Why? For power's sake. The the great merchants of the earth um, were involved with the great harlot. Why? Because of the possessions and the wealth that they could gain from it. And so, and then you've just got everyday man who's involved with the great harlot, so to speak, because of what they can get from it as well, whether it's pleasure or possessions, power, or otherwise. But what's interesting about the picture that we have here is you've got the picture of a godless society and the picture of this woman, but she's riding on a beast. And so if you look at verse 3, it says this woman was sitting on a scarlet beast, and the scarlet connects it back to the devil, who the red dragon in the book of Revelation. And the beast is evidently a, a reference to the beast from the sea, who is a picture or is a picture of tyrannical government that's been throughout history and yet ultimately will have a final manifestation at the end of time in the rule of the Antichrist. And so what is the idea of culture riding on the state. That's what the beast is. It's the state or it's the government. It's the idea that what supports the ungodly culture is the ungodly government. And so you've got things going on in our country like the whole issue of abortion and what drives a lot of that. Uh, Laws like Roe v. Wade. Now it's at the state level, but for many, many years we had the state supporting the ungodly culture in terms of the issue of abortion. And so it manifests itself in all kinds of ways to say that ultimately the only way culture can exist the way it does is if there's a support of it from the state, that that it can be protected and be facilitated in that way. And so what we see is we have this ungodly culture that's, Outwardly beautiful. You notice in verse 
uh, 4, it talks about her being clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Very attractive. That's the picture is, this is a very attractive woman. This is a very attractive thing. It's not just easy to look away and walk away. It's something that is easily uh, appealing to our heart's desire. And it says she holds a gold cup, but it's not a gold cup full of something good for you. It's a cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. It's a cup of poison. Got this beautiful woman who's offering you something to drink, and you assume... It's something that will be good for you when it's actually deadly. That's the picture that we have. And yet what's so ironic is that for a while this woman rides on the scarlet beast and then you find out that this beast or this woman um, is a woman who is a killer. And especially with regard to those who expose the true nature of what she's up to. It says in verse 6 that she was drunk with the blood of the saints. Which means that she appears very attractive, very appealing. She appears like something that would be welcoming and kind and, and uh, a good thing. But really her true nature is to kill. And especially to kill those who would expose what she's really all about. She's at war with the people of God. And that's why John in John chapter 3 would say things like, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why, why do evil societies try to silence the truth? Because it's light. And darkness hates the light. Jesus said of his own life, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. If our society gets to the point where it's persecuting Christians, why will it do that? It's because our testimony of the fact that its deeds are evil. Abortion is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Whatever it is that's wrong, the church is saying it's wrong, the society, the ungodly society, will try to silence that voice because the darkness hates the light. And that's a huge part of what's going on in our culture today. And so the first point I want to make is simply that this world we live in, even though we can become kind of... Um, you know, asleep to the fact that it's as dangerous as it really is. Uh, this society is not our friend. Let me just bring it all the way back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, you recall that um, Satan comes to Eve and he does two things, or two things happen, I should say. He comes to the woman and he speaks to the woman. He says, has God really said this? And they have this conversation and he denies that uh, God will do what he says he's going to do. And then it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good. So she's hearing things and she's seeing things. And she's deceived through the hearing and the seeing. 
Now, obviously, there's a spiritual dynamic going on there, but it's through those very means that she's deceived. And that's exactly a picture of what we have going on in our own world. We hear things and we see things. And the question is, what's the truth about what we hear? And what's the truth about what we see? And is it misleading us? Is it leading us away from God or not? And the argument here is from the book of Revelation is that ungodly society is not your friend. It's leading you away from God. As I mentioned, sexual temptation and spiritual temptation in the Bible are often connected. And that's why if you went to a passage like Proverbs 7, in Proverbs 7, it talks about sexual temptation. And it says things like at the very beginning, there's this exhortation to the son where the father says, my son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. And so the emphasis is on make sure you listen to the truth that you've been told because you're going to hear and see things that are going to lead you away from the truth. And in what form does that hearing and seeing come? It comes in the form of a harlot. He goes to the neighborhood of the harlot. And it says a young man lacking sense. Why does he lack sense? Because he's not listening to the truth that he's been told. And it says, Behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. Dressed as a harlot, attractive, but cunning in terms of how she uh, seeks to uh, seduce him, as it says. And you go on and you read through that, and it says he, he is like an ox going to the slaughter. He is seduced by her, and he does not know that it will cost him his life and the exhortation at the end says now therefore my sons listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth do not let your heart turn aside to her ways do not stray into her paths for many are the victims she has cast down and numerous are all her slain her house is the way to sheol descending to the chambers of death that is a picture of sexual temptation that same picture is used in the book of Revelation to say that is also the nature of spiritual temptation. There is a harlot, cunning of heart, called the ungodly society, the ungodly world, that tells you that life is found in pleasure and power and possessions in this life. Who needs God? And so... We find ourselves in this fallen world and we need to realize that we're like that young man in Proverbs 7 in terms of spiritual realities and sometimes in terms of physical temptation as well. So what are we supposed to think about this or do about this? All of us here probably watch movies. All of us here listen to music that isn't strictly Christian. Is this saying we should never watch a movie uh, unless it's made by a Christian. We should never listen to music unless it's by a Christian. I don't think so. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think there are remnants of the image of God in fallen man. I think God gives common grace even to people who aren't saved. And so we can benefit from poetry and songs and movies that aren't generated by believers there are benefits that we can reap from that. But we should never think that there's 
no danger in it. That if I just listen to whatever I want to listen to and watch whatever I want to watch, uh, because there's some good in it that I can get out of it, I can enjoy it without sinning, that doesn't mean there's no temptation there. Um, the Lord Jesus said in two different places, Mark 4, he says, take care what you listen to. And then in Luke 8, he says, take care how you listen. What you listen to and how you listen. We need to be very discerning in terms of the music we listen to. Um, I can listen to, you know, you might hear this as don't listen to rappers because rappers use curse, curse words and they talk about things they shouldn't talk about. And so as long as you don't listen to rappers, you're okay. Don't have to worry about being tempted by the world. No, um, you can listen to the Carpenters. If anybody knows who the Carpenters are, it's an old group. But you can listen to something that sounds very, um, you know, just no, no curse words, uh, no, uh, you know, overt uh, language that would be offensive. And yet, if you listen carefully, you hear the world speaking through even those kinds of songs. Um, and so what I'm saying is, uh, even in the best of what the world has to offer, there's a danger if you're going into it without doing what Jesus said to do. Take care how you listen. With movies, obviously, we might think, well, as long as I'm not going to X-rated movies or R-rated movies, I'm okay. I'm okay from the danger of the world, right? No, you can watch a Hallmark movie and be in danger of being deceived by the world. Do we really get that? Do we really understand that? Does that mean you shouldn't watch Hallmark movies? And I'm not saying that. I'm just saying be careful how you watch Hallmark movies. Be careful how you listen to the carpenters. Be careful how you do those things because if they're not overtly seeking to reflect what we see in the truth of Scripture, then you can bet there's something off there one way or the other. There's something that isn't affirming all that Scripture has to say. And we need to be aware of that danger. You know, I've mentioned before the fact that um, our fairy tales are very interesting in terms of their history. And if you read a little bit about the history of fairy tales, you recognize that um, they had a real purpose when they were written many, many years ago. They were meant to alert children to dangers in the world, and they were alert to alert children to consequences of wrong actions. And Disney has cleaned those up a little bit, and so, you know, in Cinderella, in the Disney version, they live happily ever after. In the actual original version, it says toward the end that the wicked sisters had one eye of each of them plucked out by a pigeon. And it says, and thus for their wickedness and falsehood, they were punished with blindness all their days. It wasn't a... Everyone lived happily ever after ending for those wicked sisters in the story. And if you read the original of Little Red Riding Hood, it says, Good day, Little Red Cap, said he. Thank you, kindly wolf. Wither away so early, Little Red Cap, to my grandmothers. What have you got in your apron? 
cake and wine. Yesterday was baking day, so poor sick grandmother is to have something good to make her stronger. Where does your grandmother live, little red cap? A good quarter of a league further or farther in the wood. Her house stands under the tree large three, excuse me, three large oak trees. The nut trees are just below. You surely must know it, replied little red cap. The wolf thought to himself, what a tender young creature, what a nice plump mouthful. She will be better to eat than the old woman. Now this was someone's commentary on that and putting it into our day and time. What we know from true crime, mystery, thrillers, horror, and the news is that there are strangers out there who aim to gain your trust so that they can then, in many ways, consume you. And fairy tales have been warning us about these beasts for a long time. Revelation has been warning us for a long time about the real beast of the world that seeks to devour us, or the devil, you might say, as it says in 1 Peter 5. Be a sober spirit, be on the alert. As you listen to music, as you watch movies, as you interact with people in society, as you listen to the news, you don't have to listen to MSNBC, you can listen to Fox News and still be deceived. You need to realize that you need to be a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. That is the reality of the world in which we live. But the second point is interesting in light of where our society seems to be headed. The second point is evil is always self-destructive. If you look at the latter part of chapter 17, verse 8 and following, it first of all talks about tyrannical governments. And this is one of the most difficult passages in the book of Revelation. A lot of people would say, I don't know if anybody knows exactly uh, what this is talking about in terms of how it's going to play out. It talks about in verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come. Some see that as Nero. There was this idea that after Nero took his life that he would be resurrected and come back and destroy the Roman Empire. In verse 9, it says, seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sits. The, the city of Rome was known as a city set on seven hill, hills, so it's certainly referencing Rome. In verse 10, it talks about seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. Some see this as seven Roman emperors. Some see this as seven kingdoms. But then it says in verse 11, he himself is an, also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The idea being that you've got the... Kingdoms of the world, tyrannical governments throughout history, and there will be one at the very end that is like them and yet unlike them in its oppression and its final expression of evil. Then it talks about, talks about the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom in verse 12. That is a picture of the whole world giving allegiance to the Antichrist. Well, all of that sets up for what we find at the end in the last three verses where it talks about the fact that um, in verse 16, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. So 
this scarlet beast that the woman has been riding on at some point at the end will be destroyed by the very state she sits on. The very state that supports her, that very society and culture will be destroyed by the tyrannical government. What happened when the Taliban took over in Afghanistan? The culture began to get shut down. The culture that had been cultivated under American oversight. Uh, women started losing their privileges that they had before the Taliban, and things began to change. And I think that's just a, a little illustration of what's being talked about here, is that at some point, the tyrannical state under the Antichrist will see that independent culture is not serving its purpose. And so it will shut it down to whatever degree it needs to in order to achieve its purposes. And what has happened in communist countries? The, the oppression of the state has overwhelmed the culture ultimately in whatever way it needed to in order to achieve its agenda. So what's happening here, I think, is something that is reflected in the Bible in a number of different ways. For instance, if you go back to the story of Gideon, where Gideon is fighting the Midianites and God tells him to just take 300 men and, and take these um, trumpets and empty pitchers and you know, put torches in them and break the pitchers and blow the trumpets and, and um, shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And they do all that surrounding this camp of Midianites and what it says is when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another even throughout the whole army. So when God did what he did through Gideon, what took place among the Midianites? They started killing each other. So what's happening here in Revelation 17? Evil is consuming evil. The sword is set one against the other. And what is happening there? God is simply removing his hand of common grace. Because that's what evil do, does. That's what evil does. Some of you may have seen um, the Batman movie where there's the Joker in the Batman movie. In the very first part of the movie, it's about a bank robbery. And the Joker, who's the villain of the movie, is with like six other guys and they're robbing this bank. And what the Joker does is he sets them against each other so that um, four of them kill each other in the process and then he kills the last one. And he takes all the money. Got a group of evil men working together and then all of a sudden one of them wipes out the others for his own evil purposes. Why? Because they're evil. We should not expect evil men to love each other. If they cooperate, they cooperate only to the extent that their purposes are being served. When those purposes aren't being served anymore, they turn on each other. That's the way it works. That's why we need to be very different as Christians. We should not be turning on each other because that's worldliness when we, we do that. And so what we find is evil is always self destructive well let me just 
uh, conclude with some application here. I'm not going to try and get into the next um, chapter because it would be too much to try and do that. But as far as application goes, as we wrap up, um, what can we say? In Galatians 6, 14, it says this. uh, Paul says, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, I've been crucified to the world and the world's been crucified to me. Does that mean he doesn't like people, doesn't want to be around people? No. It means in terms of the world system, he's not looking to the world system for pleasure and power and possessions. He doesn't think that his help and his happiness is found in this world. He knows it's found in God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he's dead to the world in that respect. And so when we think about what we find in the book of Revelation, what's being pictured for us, we ask ourselves, as I live my daily life, do I picture myself walking through a park or walking through a minefield? It makes a big difference how I visualize what's really going on. As Bilbo told Frodo, uh, it's a dangerous thing to step outside your front door. And that's what's being pictured for us here as well. One of the interesting things about the book of Revelation is it talks about overcoming. At the very beginning, and if you look at the uh, record of the seven churches, at the end of all those letters, all seven letters, it says something about the importance of overcoming. Uh, for instance, in Revelation 2, 7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is, which is in the paradise of God. And then at the end of the book, Revelation 21, 7, again it says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, the new heaven and the new earth, heaven on earth. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Why does it talk so much about overcoming? Because of the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth and because of the great harlot. That's why it talks about overcoming. And it says in 1 John 5, 4, that what overcomes the world is our faith. It's trusting in what God has said to be true. It's hearing what it says at the beginning of Proverbs 7. Listen to my words and my commandments and you will be rescued from the harlot. So in order to overcome, we need to understand certain things. We need to understand that there are hindrances to us in terms of trusting and loving as we should. Those hindrances can be tough truth in the Bible. So that when Jesus said, like we talked about last week, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you can't have eternal life. And people walked away. Tough truth can cause us just to walk away from God or trials. That's the whole picture of the, the, uh, the seed and the soils. Uh, when the sun comes out, gets really hot, uncomfortable, uh, then the faith withers. Or temptations of various kinds. It talks about um, in the parable of the soils where the thorny ground 
is consumed with the worries of this world and pleasures in this world, and it chokes out any fruit whatsoever. And so there are real hindrances to trust and love, and we need to understand the nature of sin. The picture of sin in this chapter is it's, it's a seductive idol. It involves in a sense, worshiping something other than God. It's rooted in unbelief. It's like a tree. Sin is like a tree that has its uh, roots in unbelief. I don't believe the word of God. And that leads me to look to something else so that I am caught up in idolatry. And when I'm caught up in idolatry, looking to something else besides God, then it bears the branches and the fruit of disobedience. So there's unbelief, there's idolatry, and there's disobedience. That's what happened with Eve. She fell into unbelief, so to speak, because she was hearing things from Satan. She began to see the tree and said, wow, that tree has what I long for. God doesn't. And it bore the fruit of disobedience to God. And so we need to understand that the attraction of the world is very much a danger to us. And God calls us to hold on to the truth. God calls us to... Um, steep our minds in the truth and hold on tightly to it. Uh, last night we went to a professional bull riding event in Los Angeles. And there were actually protesters outside protesting the event, which was interesting in and of itself. But part of uh, the slogan for the event in the old Staples Center was Unleash the Beast. And so you've got these bull riders and they're riding and you can see them riding and as they get on the the bull inside a little cage there before they're let go you can see them working very hard and if you watch closely you know what they're working hard at they're trying to make sure they've got a good grip on that rope or harness or whatever it is you call it that's around uh, that bull because they're gonna the chute is gonna open and uh bull is going to start bucking and the goal is to make it to the end and what is the end eight seconds and more people didn't make it than did make it of all the men that rode those bulls last night how does that have to do with anything bull riding is about staying in the saddle and holding on tightly that's what the Christian life is about. It's about staying in the saddle. Now, what saddle is that? Well, um, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat or the propitiatory. The throne of God, now because of Jesus, is called the mercy seat, the throne of grace. And so, in order to stay in the saddle, I have to hold tightly to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the word of God but I need to understand that I'm on the back of a bucking bull that is trying to throw me off and cause me to let go. That's exactly what every day is like. That's what the Bible is telling us. If you think it's not that way, then you're being intoxicated. You're, you're being misled into thinking that things are safer than they really are. The life of faith is like riding a bull. 
This world is trying to buck you off of your trust in Jesus. It's trying to buck you off of your pursuit of what pleases God through the allure of the world around you. And there are plenty of people who are outside telling you that that's exactly what you ought to do is to get off that bull and walk away and not hold on to the word of God. The picture that we find in the book of Revelation is one of the faith that overcomes. You notice that it tells us in verse 14, the world, uh, the scarlet beast, these will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. That word faithful is in there for a reason. Because the whole book is about hang on, hold on. There are real dangers to your spiritual life. But the Lamb of God has overcome and he will enable us to overcome. And we just need to keep our eyes on him. We need to hold on tightly to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word that lovingly and wisely warns us of things that we may be a little dull to. We may be have lost sight of. Father, there's so many things in this fallen world that we can still enjoy and benefit from and, and um, have as a part of our lives. But sometimes you might still forget that even at its best, worldliness is a danger. It's a risk to us. Even things like getting married and having kids and having a job and having a home, even those things can become just a worldliness that draws us away from you. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to see the threat of the world, the flesh, and the devil and help us to work hard at making sure our grip is tight on the gospel and on the truth of your word. And may we rejoice every day even on the back of that bull as it seeks to throw us, knowing that the Lamb has overcome and we will overcome through his grace as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.